0: Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. We're going to have a good time this morning. We are restarting our series in the book of John. And it occurred to me that if you've started attending here at First Baptist in the last three months, you didn't even know that we were in a series in the book of John. So if that's you, it, we have been in a series uh, in the book of John, and we finished that up, or we took a pause back at the end of November thanksgiving weekend, and then we've been doing a lot of other important stuff as we've moved through these last three months, and then we arrive at the first of february we 're going to jump back into it so we 're in John chapter six, just so that you can be prepared. but I wanted to do a quick review of of where we 've been, what's been going on in the Book of John, so that you can at least be up to speed those of you that uh, were involved, you, you heard some of these things. First of all, in John chapter 1, that was his uh, kind of world-famous preamble to the whole book where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, kind of echoing back to Genesis chapter 1, talking about in the beginning and then really unpacking it in a, in a tremendous way who Jesus is. We saw Jesus call his disciples to come follow him. We saw his first miracle in the second chapter of him turning water into wine. Uh, we saw some great interactions with, with individuals. We saw him, uh, Jesus, having a conversation with Nicodemus. There's a conversation with Jesus and the woman at the well. There's an interaction with Jesus and Jairus, who uh, needs his, whose daughter is very sick, and Jesus heals his daughter. Uh, we saw an interaction with a, a paralyzed man who was sitting, hopeless, uh, they're in Jerusalem needing help, and Jesus uh, met his need. So we've walked through those first five chapters, got to chapter 6, and at the end of November, uh, Pastor Peter reminded us, as we heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000, how uh, there are, there's an importance uh, of obedience to what Jesus calls us to do, and there's a, we need to have a, a hopeful expectation of Jesus' work in our life. And and those were the two big words at the end of November that where we kind of finished up what we were doing in that part of John, talking about obedience and expectation. But I wanted to remind you too, the main theme of the book of John, this is where we're landing each and every week in the book of John. And, And the main theme is this, that John wrote to prove conclusively that Jesus is the Son of God and that all who believe in him will have eternal life. that is when it comes right down to it, that's what John is pointing to in everything that he does and if you look at the very end of the book of John in John chapter 20, you will we will get to this, but I, I really believe each week, if not every week, every other week Peter is going to bring this verse these verses up because these are the foundational theme verses of of the gospel of John. In John chapter 20, it says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That is the the crux of what John's trying to communicate uh, to us as we move through uh, his gospel uh, together. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to continue through uh, that thematic uh, push as we look into John chapter 6. But I wanted to share with you a number of years ago, many, many, many years ago, after uh, I had been here at the church maybe three or four years, we took a team of, of people down to Haiti on a mission trip. And we uh, had never been, I had been to Haiti once previously. Uh, nobody from, from our congregation had been to Haiti. And so we were looking forward to this trip. Uh, we were going to work with uh, Dr. Hollis Clark, who runs an eye center, used to run an eye center uh, there in northern Haiti, and we were going to work with him and his wife and their staff. So we, we loaded up, we, we headed to, to Haiti, and we landed in Cape Haitian, which is the northern part of Haiti, and I, I just for the sake of fun, I googled the Cape Haitian airport just this last week to see what it looks like now. Trust me, what, if you look at it now, it, doesn't, it did not look like this back in 1997. When we landed at that airport, it was basically an airstrip, and our luggage claim was like a lean-to plywood cart that they pulled out. So we got off this plane, and I was looking around, and the, who do you suppose the one person I wanted to see? Dr. Clark. I wanted to see Dr. Clark. I needed to see his face. I had these seven or eight people with me. They're counting on Jeff to be their leader. We get off the plane and I see nobody that looks like Dr. Clark. We were the only white folks that I could see anywhere. And so we're kind of wandering around this area and, I, and I'm saying, Dr. Clark, I need you to, to be here. I was trying to sound confident with our team and uh, he was our ride and you know everyone's getting picked up and no Dr. Clark. And I'm like, oh man. Now it probably in reality was maybe five or 10 minutes that I didn't see Dr. Clark, but I'm telling you, it seemed like an hour. But when he pulled in with his van and I saw his face, Everything, everything changed. I realized that this is, we were going to be okay. This is going to be fine. But the thought of navigating through capation on our own without any help was not sounding good to me. And when I saw his face, when I saw him roll up, everything was fine. And so as we look at this story today in the, in the gospel of John, I really believe that my feeling there as I was on the ground in cap is not much different than what the disciples were feeling as they were going through this experience that we're going to read about this morning. And I hope that you can make the connection even to our own uh, situation, that there are times in our own lives that we end up feeling very similarly. It may be there was a time where you got lost in a department store or... You, you were out hiking and you lost your way and, and the sense of finding, when you find that trail again or when you see mom and dad or whatever it is that you're looking for, everything changes. So as we look at this story in John chapter 6, I want us to jump into it with that kind of perspective this morning. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to find John chapter 6 with me. We're going to start at verse 16 of John 6. 6 verse 16 of john 6 if you don't have a bible it it will be on the screen for you when evening came his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for capernaum by now it was dark and jesus had not yet joined them a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now, this is arguably the most famous and well-known miracle that, that Jesus did, I, I can't, I don't have any statistics to prove this, but I suspect that if you ask somebody who wasn't a church person, and if you ask them about Jesus, what, whatever they might tell you about Jesus, they, they probably have some kind of inkling or some kind of understanding that Jesus at one point walked on the water. And so we recognize that it is a, a well-known miracle. And we also know from knowing our Bibles that both Matthew and Mark include this miracle in their gospels, I will say that each of them, Matthew and Mark, handle it and, and, and deal with it a little bit differently than John does. And so I'm, I'm going to just make it clear to you right now that in, in Matthew 14, we have, Jesus's, uh, we have Matthew's uh, recollection of the story or how he told the story. And then in Mark uh, chapter 6, we have Mark's uh, telling of the story. And when you look at that, you will see that, for example, Matthew includes Peter walking on the water. We don't have that here in John. Uh, Mark includes some other details that, that we don't have in John. So I'm going to let you know that as we kind of unpack this story in the gospel of John, I'm, I'm going to on occasion reach back into Matthew and, and Mark to pull some details from their story, from their telling of this story as well. Because you look at John and you think, man, there's stuff I, John didn't include. I wonder why that is. And we're going to try to look at that uh, together. One thing I did notice, though, as I was reading through this story a, a number of times was it occurred to me that, this, that there was some differences in this miracle than the one they had just come out of, which was the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 happened in, a, in an extremely public setting. ten to 15,000 people, probably in in that setting when Jesus did that miracle. And here we have a miracle that's basically done in private. The only people that experienced this miracle were his disciples. And so to me, it begs the question, what was Jesus trying to communicate to his disciples? Because we've got 35-plus miracles in the New Testament that either one of the four Gospels will, uh, will tell us about in the life of Jesus. And I can think of maybe four that happened with just the disciples, with just those 12 guys, or even maybe a smaller group within the 12 disciples. So what was Jesus trying to communicate? What was he trying to pass on to his disciples by having this miracle happen just in their presence, privately with them? And it also makes me reflect on a, maybe even a, a little bit bigger question, in, and that is, what is John's purpose in relating miracles at all? What is, what is the reason that he includes these miracles uh, in his gospel? So I want to suggest to you that one of the one of the reasons that John does this is. Uh, tied up in the idea that he calls them signs when we see these miracles in the gospel of john he calls them signs this was the first sign when we when we saw the water being turned into wine john says this is the first sign that jesus did in the presence of the people so he and in my mind a sign is pointing to something else right when we see a sign it's giving us information or it's or it's pointing us to something else that we need to see so i I believe one of the reasons John's including these is he's pointing to something that he wants us to know about. Whether it's the credibility of what Jesus is teaching or who Jesus is, it's a sign pointing to that thing. Secondly, and and maybe even more importantly, and kind of connected to that, is I believe John is giving us these miracles to let us know more precisely who Jesus is. He wants us to understand who is this guy that I'm talking about, that he's the son of God. And even Paul, who was one of the other writers of the New Testament, when he talks about Jesus, gives us a picture of what I believe John was trying to communicate to us, and it's found in Colossians chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you can. I I will read it. It, it, This will not be on the screen, but it's important nonetheless. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. And Paul's talking about Jesus, and he says this. For he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or authorities. All things were created by him, and for him. So Paul recognized who Jesus was, John recognized who Jesus was, and he's trying to communicate more precisely to his followers who Jesus was. This miracle in particular, I believe speaks to that point. And I wonder as the disciples reflected on what they had just seen, if by chance they would have thought back into some of their scriptures at the time in the book of Job. There's a passage in the book of Job that says this, it's part, of a, it's part of a discourse on the uniqueness and the power of God. And the writer of Job is saying this, it says this about God, that he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And so I wonder as Jewish men, as they were reflecting on what they see when they see Jesus walking on the water, if they recognize that their God, this God that has historically watched out for their people, one of the very distinct things that the Old Testament says about God is he treads on the waves of the sea. So John is communicating more precisely for his followers who Jesus is. And then lastly, to go along with the theme of the Gospel of John, I believe he's putting these miracles in place so that we would understand that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, the one that does these miracles, that we can have eternal life. So that's what I believe that John is trying to communicate by including these miracles throughout the book, throughout his gospel. Clearly there were other ones that other miracles that Jesus did. John even says as much at the end of the gospel. So there's even more precisely John has chosen the signs, chosen the miracles that he wanted to include that he believes best explain best point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. So, we need to look at this question. What does John want us to know? His, His account is different than Matthew's and different than Mark's. What is it that John wants us to know from this particular incident in the lives of Jesus and his disciples? And so I think what I wanna do is I want to say, first of all, what is John not saying? What are, what are some things that John clearly doesn't want to communicate to us? And the first is, when we think about the situation that was happening, that John is not saying that Jesus had power to calm the storm. If you read Matthew and Mark, they make a big deal about the storm that these disciples were in when they're out on the Sea of Galilee, trying to row their boat over to Capernaum. They make a big deal about the storm. They make a big deal about the fact that when Jesus gets into the boat, the storm stops. John doesn't say anything other than there was a lot of wind, and after Jesus got in the boat, they ended up where they were headed. He doesn't mention the storm again. John is also not saying that if you have enough faith, you can get out of the boat and you can walk on the water. That's a great sermon from the book of Matthew. Because Matthew talks about Peter walking on the water, getting out of the boat, his eyes on Jesus and and having great faith. John doesn't mention any of that. So what is it that John is wanting us to know this morning? So I want to land on two big takeaways for me. As I have been reading this and looking at the accounts, two big takeaways that I want us to land on this morning. And the first is this, Jesus is... In fact, the Son of God. Jesus had power over creation. We just, as we have have seen, he has just fed 5,000 people, 10,000 people, 12,000 people, however many thousands of people, fed them with, what was it? Five loaves of bread and two fish. Clearly, Jesus has power over creation, power over the physical world he has obviously power over nature in the sense of walking on water and a storm being calmed this is a miracle that actually happened this is a statement that John is making that the that that Jesus goes he transcends he goes beyond the circumstances of of this world He's not bound by those things. The very things that were hindering the disciples, the wind, the waves, the darkness, none of that was a problem for Jesus. He came walking out to them and had power over all those things. None of those things were a hindrance to him. John is describing to these uh, readers and to, to the, those that were following uh, Jesus that, that this Jesus was greater than any prophet that had ever come before. Anybody that they were looking to in the past, Moses, Abraham, Isaiah, any of those prophets pale in comparison to this man who's walking on the water to them, who's teaching them, who's leading them. One sermon that I listened to as I was preparing for this morning the preacher said this. I thought this was fantastic. Listen to this. God parted the sea so Moses could walk on dry ground. You remember that back in Exodus. God parted the sea so Moses could walk on dry ground. Jesus walks on the water as if it's dry ground. That's what John's communicating. Anybody that you look to in the past, disciples, Jewish followers, anybody that you're tying your wagon to that you say, this is a person that I, I want to connect my life to, Jesus is greater than all of them. He's the Son of God. It's a sign of his deity. The words that Jesus said, uh, said as he taught, the things that he did were a sign that he was God in the flesh, as John had said. Time and time again, John is demonstrating that Jesus redefines their understanding of who he was and what he came to do. Every time Jesus teaches something, every time Jesus does something, it, it blows up the box that they had put God into, that they had put Jesus into. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God to us. Jesus is the son of God. The second big takeaway is that the presence of Jesus changes everything. What John is saying here is that there is something about the presence of Jesus that changes our perspective. He's reminding the disciples that they need him, that they need Jesus in their life. Je- Jesus knew where he was sending the disciples. When, they had, when he had fed the 5,000, Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus sent the disciples to the boat and across the lake. Jesus sent them away. Jesus knew where he was sending them. He knew what he was sending them into. It was going to be difficult. They were going to encounter a storm. And so I think we need to be careful that when we encounter the storms in our life, we might be tempted to say, well, this can't be from God because God would never make life this tough. Let me assure you that God allows the difficult things to come into our life. Jesus knew where he was sending those disciples that night. They rowed that boat against the wind for hours. If you look at the chronology in Matthew and Mark, six or eight hours they were rowing that boat against the wind. And I'm just gonna take a moment to say most, the vast majority of you will not relate to this, but let me just tell you about wind. When I, when I ride my bicycle, which I do from time to time, uh, there hills are fine, downhills are fine, Wind is not fine. Wind is invisible and it it wreaks havoc on your brain. I should be pedaling faster than this. I should be making more ground than this. Why am I so tired from just pedaling my bicycle? These guys were, were rowing that boat for hours against the wind. They were exhausted. It was the middle of the night. And then when Jesus shows up, you can imagine... And the scripture tells us this. John tells us they were terrified. Matthew and Mark tell us they were terrified because they thought Jesus was a ghost. So now they're exhausted. They're probably getting on each other's nerves. They're wondering what this is all about. And then they see this aberration they feel walking towards them. And they're terrified. Now in our passage in John, we get... One sentence from Jesus, and the sentence is this. It is I, don't be afraid. Those are the only words from Jesus that we get in John chapter 6, in this, in this story, I should say. But that statement is included in all three accounts. Matthew, Mark, and John all include that statement. There's something to that. Jesus says, I Am He. I am," is literally what the Greek says. "I am." And so as we unpack the rest of John, and as, as Peter walks with us through the rest of this series, we're going to see, in fact, starting next week, that there are some brilliant statements that Jesus makes. We start next week with, "I am the bread of life." Jesus starts building on this idea that I am He." He tells him, "It is I. Don't be afraid. And man, that's a loaded statement to any Jewish person. What's Jesus saying about himself? Again, he's reminding them who he is. And they were sitting in a situation where they were completely and utterly dependent upon God. They were not making, uh, they were desperate for their lives at that point, I believe. And so it's tempting for us to think, that this story about Jesus walking on the water, well, it's about the disciples and, and what they experience, or it's about what we can learn about our, our particular circumstances and how God wants to impact my life. And I want to suggest that we need to take a step back and say it's not about the disciples, it's not about you and I, it's about Jesus. And it's about what happens when he shows up in the circumstances of our life. So let's look at the placement of this story. All three Gospels that relate this story, it, it, this comes right after the feeding of the 5,000. And so I looked at the geography of the Sea of Galilee, and, and it says that they were, they were on the far east side of the lake. Jesus does the miracle with the feeding of the 5,000, and then he tells them that he wants them to go across, and he, was, he would meet them on the other side of the lake. So we know that they're rowing from east to west, and it's, again, the geography... In that part of the world, the Sea of Galilee actually is below sea level. And so there are times when wind comes, you know, whipping into that valley there. So it's not unusual. This is something that that happened all the time. But as we think about this story, I want us to think about what the disciples may have been feeling when they first got into the boat. Because they had just had the feeding of the 5,000. Again, ten or 12,000. They've watched Jesus do this. It actually says at the end of that story in John chapter 6, verse 15, that Jesus knew that the crowd was ready to take him by force and make him their king. That's, that's the environment that we're in. The vibe is, this is the guy. We want to make him our king. And I'm sure that the disciples are like, hey, we have hitched ourselves to the right guy. We are right in the right spot. This is the guy we want to be with. We are on the inner circle Any of you that have had a mountaintop experience with God at camp or some other experience where you go, this is what it's all about, I suspect that's where the disciples were at after the feeding of the 5,000. They were like, this is where we need to be. And within five or six hours, they are desperate for their life. They're at the end of themselves. They need help. And again, that's not much different than the way we live our lives. We have incredible experiences. Maybe we have a wonderful worship service or we're at camp. Something happens and we're on this high and within a matter of days maybe we're in the deepest valley we've ever been in and then we climb back out of it. I mean, that's the way this roller coaster of our walk with the Lord can be sometimes. It was no different for those disciples. They go from a high point to a dark and a desperate place. And let me just say that mountaintop experiences are great. They're wonderful. God is there in the midst of that. No question, Jesus was with them on that uh, that wonderful experience. But the growth happens, I believe, when we get into the valley and we really recognize our need for God in our life. And that's where these disciples were when Jesus shows up. So what they were experiencing, it's the same for us. When we encounter storms in our life, it will change our perspective. We, we start to look at the circumstances around us. We are hopeless, we're fearful. We have doubts, we're struggling. And when Jesus shows up, it changes our sidelines. it changes our perspective. All of a sudden we realize it's not about me, it's not about my circumstances, it's not about my situation. God wants to do something in my life. And let me just say that there are promises all the way through God's word where this is true. Isaiah chapter 41 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Joshua 1 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Matthew 28, Jesus says... Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Exodus chapter 3, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. God knows. God knows your circumstances. God knows your struggle. God knows your heartache. God knows the hopelessness that creeps into our life. God knows. So what changes things? What changes things is the presence of God, the presence of Jesus. The disciples, when they were at their absolute lowest, and they recognized it was Jesus walking to them on the water, it changed everything for them. So I want to finish this morning by asking you this question, and that is, how do we experience the presence of God? I mean, this is is key, right? I mean, if this is what changes everything, how is it that I, in a practical way, how is it that I experience the presence of God in my life? Day to day, moment by moment, how does God show up in my life? Now, let me just say and to and be completely honest, if, if, there's an, if there's a part of my walk with God, and, and I've been a Christian for close to 50 years, if there's a part of my walk with God that I still struggle with, this is it. Is recognizing moment by moment the presence of God in my life. How do I experience that? How do I this this change of perspective that Jesus brings? How do I experience God's presence in my life moment by moment? Because make no mistake, there I get little glimpses. Every you know, I'll be reading the Bible or I'll be reading something or I'll be listening to something, and, and God will make the connections in my mind about something I'm struggling with. And I say, Man, thanks, God. That, that's the real deal. I mean, that's, but, but what I'm talking about is moment by moment, how can I better experience God's power, His presence in my life and in our lives? And so I want to give us a couple of things that I think will help. But just let me say, we need to, we need to encourage each other along this journey. I mean, I'm just going to suspect that there are others of you that are struggling with a, a similar kind of struggle of, of being able to identify more readily the presence of God, presence of Jesus in our life. The first thing that I would point to is a promise from Jesus in John chapter 14. And and Peter will get to this in a few weeks, no doubt. But in John 14, Jesus says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you alone. I will send my Holy Spirit to come and take up residence in your life. So the presence of the Holy Spirit in us as believers, God's promise is that when we come to faith in Jesus, that his Holy Spirit invades our life and becomes the presence of God in our life. And that's nothing, that's nothing to uh, discount. That's an incredible reality that we need to grab onto. How does that show up? How do we experience that? Again, this is, this is the, the journey that we're on together, but Galatians chapter five talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says, when the spirit of God is present in you, you will have love, you will have joy, you will have peace, you will have patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. All these things are evidence of God in my life. So as I look at my life, as it begins to transform and change and things pop up that are supernatural things that I couldn't do on my own, that's, that's the presence of God in my life. The peace that God brings into my life in the midst of a world that is full of chaos That's the presence of God in my life. When you get the diagnosis that uh, there's uh, an illness or when you have that tragic event in your life, the passing of somebody, maybe an injury or an accident, whatever it might be, the peace that God brings into our life, that's the presence of God in our life. So the Holy Spirit does that in us. And then real quick, the second thing is, I believe Jesus is sitting right here among us. He talks about the fact that we are the body of Christ, that we are the hands and feet of Jesus. So as we interact with one another, as we encourage one another, as we support one another, as we pray for one another, we are in that sense being Jesus in the lives of those around us. We are the hands and feet of our Savior in the lives of other people. So there again, that reminds me of the importance of even what happens here on Sunday morning. I mean, if it was just that we came here, had a great worship service and had some great singing and great teaching and all that, that's wonderful. That's needful, we need that. But I believe even more than that, the importance of us being together, interacting with one another, encouraging, challenging, One another is what the body of Christ is all about. We are the presence of Jesus in the lives of each other. So I want you to uh, think on that this week and realize that this kind of abbreviated story in the Gospel of John that misses some of the details that maybe we wish John would include really says what we need to know, that Jesus is the Son of God and his presence in our life changes everything. But I wanna finish with one last thing. Verse 21 of John chapter six. In verse 20, we see Jesus walking to them on the boat, and he says, it is I, don't be afraid. Verse 21 in John chapter six says this. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. And as I reflected on that, I, I wondered about our circumstances even this morning that as we sit here this morning, that I might ask you the question, are you willing to take Jesus into the boat? Have you recognized who Jesus is in your life? And are you willing to take him into the boat? I don't know your circumstances. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what struggles you have, uh, what joys you're experiencing in your life. But I do know this, that you need Jesus in your life. We, it's what we all need. And so Jesus says to us the very same thing that he said to the disciples in the middle of the night, in the middle of the lake, he says, it is I, don't be afraid. He wants to meet you in the midst of the chaos that is your life. So let me pray for us. Pray with me. So here's what I want to say this morning as we're just bowed and we're reflecting on this. If it's true about you that you have never invited Jesus into your boat, into your life, if you've never recognized who Jesus is, this could be the day that you would do that. And it's as as simple as acknowledging your need for Jesus, that you admit that you are a sinner, that you admit that you're, you're... Attempts at doing life on your own are not working. That you need help. And that you would believe, that you would repent, and that you would believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He's the son of God. He came to bring eternal life to those that would put their trust in him. And then you would choose that for yourself. That you would choose to follow him with your life. So God, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the reality of the gospel, I'm, the good news that you are the Son of God coming into this world to give eternal life to those who would believe in you. And so God, if there's those today that, that need to make that decision, that they would uh, make that their prayer and they would choose to follow you uh, in their life. God, we love you. We thank you for your reality, for your presence in our life, Help us to experience that in a greater and greater way. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I want you to do this morning. If, if that is a decision that you need to make, Peter mentioned earlier in the pew rack in front of you, there's a next steps card. And it's just as simple as you checking the box on there that says that you've made a commitment to follow Christ. And, and you can drop that in the basket on the way out. We would love to know about that decision because we believe there, there is more that God wants to do in you. You've made a great decision, but there's more that God wants to do in you, and we want to help you along that journey. Now, I also believe there's many of you here this morning that have made that decision in your life. You have invited Jesus into your boat, but you, maybe you still struggle with understanding what the presence of God is all about, what it looks like for you. And this morning, as, as we conclude our service, we have the chance to uh, take the Lord's Supper together, to have communion together. And I can't think of a more tangible practice that Jesus left for us than this, that as we hold the bread and the juice in our hand, that it really is reminding us of who Jesus is and what he's done in our life. And it really is a symbol of his presence with us. So as that is served, there's two cups in there uh, that are stacked together. One has the bread, one has the uh, juice. I just invite you to uh, meditate a little bit as that comes around. You hold that, and then I'll lead us together as we receive that together. But this is our chance coming out of this story of Jesus walking on the water, of really experiencing in a tangible way his presence this morning. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for who you are. We're grateful for the fact that you sent Jesus as our Savior and that you've given us this symbol, this, this bread and, and this cup to remind us not just of Jesus' sacrifice, but his victory over death, that we could know you personally through what he did for us. So guide our hearts, guide our thinking as we, as we hold this in our hand, but we reflect on who you are in our life today. In Jesus' name, amen.